Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley and I'm super excited for this week's show because we'll be talking about Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and I'm joined for this conversation by the one and only JB. Patrick, I just want to say that you bled my mama and you bled my father, but you won't bleed me. <laughs> Um, happy June exploitation, everyone. I think this is our first proper podcast during June exploitation because we were off last week, uh, given everything that's going on in the world. June exploitation seems to be a success thus far, both on yes. Twitter and in the comments. People seem to be having a good time. I will admit, I have struggled a great deal this June exploitation. Uh, to not only find stuff to watch, but to focus on what it is that I'm watching. How is your Junesploitation going? Well, first of all, is this Junesploitation number what? How many times have we done this? I think this is eight. Okay. This is the first year that I will actually do all the days. Well, that's cool. I'm on track to do all the days. So... Given all the wonderful stuff that's going on in the world, I find it a magnificent distraction. However, I am watching every film through a political lens, and that doesn't always work out great. <laughs> Although it did, it did give me some new insights into The Exterminator the other night, which I will share by and by. Okay, excellent. How did you come to watch... Um exorcism at 6,000 feet. Is that what it's called? Okay. Here's how stupid I am. I go on to the digital bits on occasion. I see what's coming out. I see what looks interesting. I think, what could my budget contain? What do I want to watch? And for some reason, I think it's because I recently bought Superdome. I thought exorcism at 60,000 feet was some made for TV thing from the eighties that I had missed. I didn't, I, I like, I looked at the cover of it and I didn't even look at the cover very closely because that would have informed me. So when I finally broke it out to watch it, I was like, Oh, this is shout studios. This is 2020. This was made in conjunction with girls and corpses magazine. <laughs> oh, this isn't, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And, uh, I have been accused in the past on this website of describing bad movies in a possibly entertaining way that makes people want to watch them. Sure. It's so bad. It's it's not bad in any good way. It's awful. It's creepy. It's racist. It's obvious. It's really bad um they have about 15 minutes of material to work with and they stretch it out to um i think it's about an hour and a half uh i know there's a scene where the the priest who performs the exorcism is putting someone into a body bag and they draw that out so that that's like 10 minutes long it's so bad. It's obvious that all these names they got to lend it some sort of indie cred. Every one of them like gave them one day. What are the names? I'm unfamiliar. Lance Hendrickson. Lance Hendrickson is the pilot. Uh, he he's game and he gives it all he's got, but it's not enough. Bill Mosley's the co-pilot. Adrian Barbeau is this rich woman in first class and it's obvious that barbeau gave them like one day because there's all this stuff where she should be in the first class cabin right where is she they're not showing her a lot because she put in her one day um it's indescribably bad nothing in it is funny it's just it's like a dirty joke your uncle would tell at a party when he was drunk and he didn't think you were listening, fleshed out to feature length. Just this uh, description of it, though, is going to be enough for at least one person to say, well, now I have to see this. Well, I would like that one person, and I will mail them the disc, because God knows I'm never going to spin it again. Um, I would love that one person to weigh in 
after they watch it and like say from now on I will listen to JB <laughs> because that's an hour and a half of my life and half of my soul that I will never get back. Did I mention it's racist? You did. The stewardess and her little helper are both Asian and oh the comic possibilities of that. Um yeah, it reminds me of that uh that classic setup. What if someone was Asian? Yes, and uh one of the other passengers is a rabbi, so you basically get the exorcist and the rabbi she's a mom with a kid and the kid is played by a little person but throughout the whole movie you're like is it supposed to be a kid or a little person because he's got multiple piercings in his face (laughs) are they just pretending he's a kid or is Kelly Maroney the only one who doesn't know it's a little person? Is is it? They never make that clear. And there's a big sequence where she has to breastfeed the kid. Oh, of course. This this is the level of humor mm. uh, that I'm talking about. The rabbi is played by the co-writer, and the other co-writer is a passenger who like sleeps through the whole thing. I guess in a nod to the taking of Pelham one, two, three, but my guess is that's not what they're nodding to. It's just <laughs> awful. So if that's the low point of your June exploitation thus far, what else have you been watching or to, to put it another well, watched, way, have you seen anything good lately? I watched the exterminator, which I had not seen since it's original theatrical release when I was in college. And back then I thought it was pretty sleazy, but the other night, it was actually a lot better than I remembered it. it. It's not good by any means, although the opening Vietnam sequence... Oh, my gosh. Um, some of the effects are really impressive. No, it's awful. There's... In terms of how, like, what graphic... No, in terms of how graphic and effective oh, no, it, it is. it's very, very graphic. It's what really I'm hard to watch, is, yeah. They flew a helicopter through fireballs, and this is on a very low budget so i'm wondering well this looks very impressive and it's it's obviously not stock footage and it's obviously not cgi um but that was good uh christopher um christopher george is always interesting if i watch one more christopher george movie we're going to call it george exploitation this month um but because i was seeing everything through a racial lens because of what's going on in the country I thought it was interesting that the film posits this friendship between a white character and a black character, and the white character is sort of going to bat to avenge his black friend. And throughout the film, unless I miss something, he never kills anyone black. Okay. All of all of his victims are white. Okay. And then there was a street tough. I forget what the character's name, but I called him Street Tough, and he's the one that uh, Robert Ginty questions with a with a with a fire with a flamethrower. And I kept looking, and I like that guy looks really really familiar. Turns out it's uh, Rhea Seahorn's boss on Better Call Saul, not the original law firm, the the other law firm she goes to work for, and it's uh, Dennis Boutsikaris. And uh, The Exterminator was his first film. Wow. He's had a very long career. He's been on every television show ever made. Uh, I am a fan of The Exterminator because I'm a Glickenhaus fan. And uh, I, I, I will maintain that The Exterminator suffers from the same problem that any movie has that co-stars Steve James, which is okay. Steve James – should always be the lead and the guy playing the lead should always be the co-star. It's true of American Ninja. It's true of Avenging Force. I think it's true of the Exterminator. I think it's a better movie if Steve James is the lead and Robert Ginty, AKA someone's dad who accidentally got cast in a movie was playing <laughs> the friend. 
Oh no, that's obvious from the first ten minutes. You're sitting there and you're like, wait a minute. Uh, spoiler alert. Steve James is in a hospital bed for ninety percent of the film. What on earth were you thinking? Yeah, it's that's a bit. That's a big mistake. Um, I think the film's basic flaw is it's very straightforward until the exterminator's first act of vengeance. At which point, it just becomes a random series of uh, revenge scenarios. I mean, it just there's no rhyme or reason to it other than what else can this guy do? <laughs> Drop someone into a meat grinder. That's what he can do. I remembered that from the first time I saw it, and I also remembered the the soldering iron sequence from the first time I saw it. That is really gross and sleazy. Uh, with I believe his name is Robert Lippman uh, playing a character who winds up being a state senator. <laughs> so this film has uh, has political. <laughs> things on its mind to your point about none of the exterminators the state senators <laughs> uh none of the victims in the exterminator being black the main bad guy in the exterminator 2 is played by mario van peebles son <laughs> of melvin van peebles who wrote and directed the movie we're talking about tonight okay so someone pointed out the Glickenhaus that there was a big that he 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 overlooked an opportunity in the exterminator, <laughs> and he used the sequel to uh, to fix that problem. Yeah, he righted that wrong. Um, and then finally, uh, a film that had escaped me, and I thought I had seen it. I thought I had seen it multiple times, but I guess I was thinking of the movie Super Cop. I discovered this week I had never seen a Police Story with Jackie Chan. I just pretty recently saw that for the first time on the Criterion Blu-ray. And it's amazing. Yeah, it's great. For any number of reasons. I mean, it's just so great. I was texting my son about it because he's a big fan. In fact, it turned out he had my Criterion disc, so I had to watch it on the Criterion channel. And um, he said, it's amazing what you can do. Uh, when the country in which you're filming has very lax union rules. <laughs> um, if if anyone's listening to this who hasn't seen Police Story yet, um, I think I said any other action film that had one of these action sequences in it would be remembered for it. And by my count, Police Story has five. Well, and this becomes, I think, a, a handicap with Jackie Chan movies is every time I watch one, and I've watched quite a few lately because uh, 88 Films has recently remastered a bunch of Jackie Chan titles and has been putting them out on Blu-ray. And um, the Criterion Channel had a handful, and uh, Amazon Prime, I think, has a handful. Yeah. So I've, I've watched a number of Jackie Chan movies in the last month or so, and my expectations are so sky-high that if they don't have five show-stopping action sequences featuring stuff I've never seen in a movie before. I'm like, well, that was kind of a disappointment, which is completely unfair, but he's raised the bar because to such a degree. Right, he's setting the bar. <clears throat> um, I will say, though, that when if you were to ask someone who has seen Police Story and who, or who loves Police Story, although anyone who sees Police Story will love Police Story, they will probably point out uh, the sequence where the two cars race through the shanty town or the extended fight in the mall that's decorated for Christmas. I think my favorite action sequence was much smaller. It involves five guys trying to beat up Jackie and two cars. Yeah. And it's sort of, again, Buster Keaton would be proud. It's variations on a theme, uh, up the, um, up the moonroof, through the window, through here, around here, like how many different, ways can we get of having guys fight around these two cars it's amazing i love that mall sequence at the end because there's no glass that they won't break lots of glass and i thought that because police story got jackie chan so much attention with that amazing stunt when he rides the christmas lights down that that might have been one of the inspirations for the big piece of silk that he rides down in rush hour oh yeah those those two sequences seem very similar to me. I haven't seen Rush Hour in a long time. I'm, I'm due for a revisit. I like that movie. I'm wondering, because I haven't seen it in a dog's age, w w do you think it holds up? Um, outside of some of the casual racism, I'll bet it does. 
I believe I own that. I might spin that soon. Yeah. So those are my three. And uh, except for exorcism at 60,000 feet, which you should avoid like Satan. Um, June's exploitation has been a lot of fun so far. How do you go about choosing what it is you're going to watch? Because for me, it's kind of, I'm kind of uh, stuck with what's streaming because again, as I've mentioned countless oh. times on the website and on the podcast, all of my stuff is in boxes, not for too much longer, but uh, I don't have access to most of my physical media collection. So I'm kind of stuck with what's streaming. So like yesterday for 80s Action Day, I ended up watching Raw Deal on Amazon Prime, even though I've seen it five times already. I was like, well, I got to watch something. Um, whereas, So we are, we, are actually at, we are at opposite ends of the spectrum because what I've been doing is trying to watch discs that I haven't watched in a long time. Yeah. And sometimes you have to text your friend and say, does the exterminator count for 80s action? And your friend says, of course, I'm watching Raw Deal on a streaming service. Um, yeah, the exterminator counts, absolutely. That almost made me watch Raw Deal on a streaming service. <laughs> I came very close to watching that. I, I, in the past, I've generally liked to watch like discs that I've never watched before, you know, that it becomes this great excuse to break something out and watch it for the first time. Um, I still have to watch a slasher at some point today. I haven't watched one yet. I'm going to count student bodies, which I wrote about today. And, uh, at the end of the month, uh, Jan and I are collaborating on a column, AKA Adam Risky and Patrick Bromley for, I think it's my last column in June. We watched something together and given what the movie is, we thought the conversation would be enlightened by having it be a guy and a girl talking about it. But I think everyone's going to like it. I'm excited for this. I don't know what it is, but I'm, I'm teasing it. Should I, should I tell everyone the name of the film? No, make everybody wait in heated anticipation. I'll give everyone a hint. It just came out on Blu-ray. Uh, nope, I got nothing. Yeah, I think this, it would be hard to guess. Here's a second hint. <laughs> it was very popular on cable like 20 years ago. Uh, oh, I think I know what it is, actually. It got shown a lot. <laughs> and now I know what it is. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm looking forward to it. That'll be fun. Yeah, yeah I've seen that. that. Was, I've seen that movie a lot cool. of times. You've seen that move? Okay, I'm, if I make the if I make the joke, I was gonna make that. The whole away. movie. Okay, I've I'm... seen the whole movie a lot of times. Okay, the whole movie. The whole movie. The whole thing. <laughs> um, yeah, but my June exploitation has been weird so far. I've seen the highlight so far was a, was my Jackie Chan movie, uh, which was a movie called Dragons Forever, which stars him and Sammo Hung, and it's just one of these mm -hmm. delightful. Um, it's directed by Sammo Hung and it's delightful in that it's like, it's part action movie, part comedy, part romance. It's just one of these movies that sets out to be as entertaining as it possibly can be. Uh, the action choreography is of course amazing. And, um, I've been watching a lot of Sammo Hung movies lately too. And I really, uh, because our our uh, listener and friend Ross McNesby turned me on to a, a Sammo Hung three pack that Eureka just put out with three of his films on Blu-ray, so I imported that and uh, was possibly going to write about one or two of them, but I, I watched all three and they're all really really great in different ways. Um, Dragons Forever is not part of that three pack, but it's well worth your time if you happen to come across it. Uh, the only other movie that I'll really talk about is I just watched on Shudder uh, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. Which I've been meaning to watch because you were the first person who I ever heard suggest certain things about Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Yeah, and it's certainly not – it didn't originate with me. It certainly wasn't new uh, to me. It's it's really interesting to watch the documentary. I think the documentary is really good and really worth watching. And um, it's this really fascinating portrait of Mark Patton and kind of what he went through, both in coming to Hollywood as a closeted gay man and then what happened to him as a result of the reception to that movie. 
the way that its legacy has changed and the way that he has come to embrace uh, his participation in it and, you know, coming out and what all that meant for him. Um, but it's, it's interesting to watch now because so much of the documentary, I think, is dependent on the perception of that movie as being very negative, as it being the least liked movie in the franchise. And I would say in the last five or ten years, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the the sort of perception of Nightmare on Elm Street 2 amongst horror fans has really shifted and people have really yeah. come around on that movie and, and, and in large part because of the sort of homosexual content that it's this fascinating uh, queer horror movie. And so you watch it and, and Mark Patton is talking about, oh, this was so hard for me and this was you know terrible for many, many years. And part of you was like, well, why? People love it now. But you got to remember that for a long time, people didn't love it. And it was kind of the laughing stock of that franchise. Um, I remember. Yeah. You know, and it's it's certainly not my favorite in the franchise, but I do respect that it does some different stuff, um, not just in some of its, you know, kind of latent queer imagery, but also in the way that it turns Freddy uh, takes a Freddy movie and makes it kind of a possession movie. Uh, it's different from a, every other movie in the franchise and you kind of got to give it credit for that. No, I still remember going to see it when it came out in theaters and <clears throat> I had really high expectations because of the first one and I was disappointed by it. But even back then I acknowledged that it was trying to do something different. Well, in the central, not conceit of the documentary, but um, there's sort of a conflict at the center of the documentary that Mark Patton really wants the screenwriter, whose name I believe is like David Chaskin, I might have that wrong, um, to admit that he wrote a gay horror film. Because I guess in the years after the movie came out, David Chaskin said, well, I didn't write any of that. Mark Patton was just so gay that uh, it turned into a gay horror film, and that was incredibly hurtful and damaging for Mark Patton. And so he really wants to confront the screenwriter and get him to admit, like, hey, you did this intentionally. This was something that you put on the page. I didn't bring this out of the movie. Um, and so that's sort of where the movie climaxes, because the director, Jack Shoulder, to this day, claims, I had no idea. Uh, it, it went completely over his head. Yeah, that part I knew. Which is fascinating to me <laughs> that he could make the movie and not see any of this stuff. But I think the documentary is, him, is really they, good and worth watching. They got You got to give them credit. At least they didn't make a carbon copy of The First Nightmare. No, absolutely not. They waited until uh, Dream Warriors to do that. Oh, just kidding, Dream Warriors. Um, yes, they did. But <laughs> Dream Warriors has some stuff in it that's kind of amazing i like dream warriors i just don't like dream warriors as much as everybody else i i i'm being petty because so many people prefer it to the original and i can't stand i, I can't stand by and allow that kind of slander well no i don't i don't agree with that <laughs> uh, let's talk about sweet sweetback's badass song the thinking here um Truth be told, I just, I don't know how to proceed. You know, uh, last week we were all feeling very raw and upset. Things were so turbulent and hard to watch. Um, and so we just reran our do the right thing podcast because that seemed to make sense because that movie, you know, that came out in 1989 was really commenting on, exactly what's happening right now and yes go ahead and as better minds than mine have suggested in the last two weeks um you have to be blind not to see a pattern that these things just keep happening again and again and again i guess it was a compliment that someone said that the do the right thing podcast could have been recorded last week yeah but that's not a compliment in terms of what's going on in the world. Um, and then you look at Sweet Sweetback and you look at the inciting incident that starts the whole plot of that film. Right. 
and you look at when that film was made and you start to notice this pattern that things get really bad in terms of the police being an oppressive force and then things sort of settle down for a while. But at least since Emmett Till and certainly before Emmett Till, it's the same thing over and over and over again. John Oliver did an entire show on this two nights ago and said that anyone who looks at these reports that are obviously generated will say, oh, but this reminds me of the 1943 incident, which reminded me of the 1923 incident that reminded me of the 1918 incident. I mean, what happened with George Floyd is exactly what happened to Eric Garner. Right. Exactly. So so when is it going to stop? Um, that being said, I think the way to go forward is through honesty. We're both white. Yes. We need to acknowledge that. Uh, yeah. And I know that our hearts are in the right place, but we're we're here to talk about a film. But obviously we have very strong um, uh, personal opinions on this. Absolutely. And my, you know, even my choosing of this film wasn't so much for its content, even though its content is incredibly relevant, despite it being a 50 year old film. My feeling was, hey, we run this little podcast that some people listen to and like, and it brings them some amount of escape. Uh, and so I do feel a personal responsibility to keep putting out shows, even though Sometimes I just don't feel like it. It's hard to sit down and talk about movies with everything that's going on. Um, but I thought, well, the least I can do is try to maybe spotlight some black filmmakers. Um, and so I thought this was a great place to start for the next few weeks. We'll be putting out shows uh, on movies from black filmmakers. That, you know, our conversations may not be political. They may be. I don't know. Um, but I thought the least we could do is is shine a light on some movies uh, from black filmmakers, starting with Sweet Sweetback, uh, which really, you know, isn't the first black film ever made, but definitely s began a movement in 1971. You know, sort of the one-two punch of this and Shaft, both, I think, from Shaft came out in 1971 too, right? Yeah, it's the it's really the first black exploitation film, and if I can just this is hard for me to put into words, but Melvin Van Peebles' son Mario later made a film about the making of Sweet Sweet Back, which is called Badass, which I first saw at Ebert Fest. And any of you listening to this, I you have to see Sweet Sweet Back if you've never seen it, because it's a seminal film. If you would, if you are at all interested in film history, you have to see Sweet Sweetback. Um, Badass is very entertaining. And if any of you saw the recent My Name is Dolomite, yeah. My Name is Dolomite owes a lot yeah. to Badass for a number of reasons. But the one scene I really like in Dolomite is a scene that made explicit something that isn't made explicit in Badass, that Sweet Sweetback and Shaft came about at a particular time in history where white flight to the suburbs had emptied out metro areas, and we suddenly had these movie palaces, and no one was going. So it was a perfect combination to have these new films that reflected what was going on in society with largely black casts now being shown in theaters that served the black community. And that's one of the reasons why they were so successful in Dolomite. Um, it's explained to the Rudy Ray Moore character that these are beautiful theaters that are not yet in the disrepair they would fall to in the late seventies that hold 4,000 people. Yeah. Um, so it's important from an exhibition standpoint too. something I'm particularly fascinated by the history of how movies get shown and where they're shown. And at this point, uh, sweet, sweet back and shaft sort of join forces forces with people like Kroger Bab, who 
figured out new ways to show movies in new places. <laughs> Didn't you just write about no, Kroger Bab? Like, I just wrote about Kroger Bab, and I mentioned in passing that there has never been a book about Kroger Bab. And my lovely wife, who was interested in me staying busy in my retirement, has suggested to me many times over the last five weeks that I am the one to write a book about Kroger Bad. I support this idea. Um, every single thing I've written about Kroger Bab tells me he's one of the most fascinating human beings <laughs> who ever lived. So where's the book? Um, but basically, we're talking about finding theaters with an audience that will pay money to see your film. Mm -hmm. That's that's the commonality of this. And Sweet Sweetback was a tremendous hit. It made a lot of money when it first came out. Well, and there's a, a little bit of a discrepancy because I'm thinking back to My Name is Dolomite and scenes of Eddie Murphy as Rudy Ray Moore talking about, I want to put all the stuff in this movie that my fans want to see. I want to put all the stuff in this movie that black audiences want to come out and see. So there's going to be sex and there's going to be comedy and there's going to be Kung Fu. You know, there's going to be all this shit that, that people want to see. And, and he wanted an exorcism, but the, the screenwriter <laughs> talked him out of that one. But then he makes a whole movie about it. He makes Petey Wheatstraw. Uh, you know, they couldn't put it in, in Dolomite. So he's like, well, I'll just make a whole movie about the devil's son-in-law. Um, Damn right. <laughs> so, and... Sweet Sweetback doesn't really do that, even though it sort of announces its intentions right up front where it says, you know, starring the black community. It's saying this is a movie for everyone, you know, uh, in our community. This is my first viewing of Sweet Sweetback. I had never seen it. And unfortunately, I saw it. You know, JB, you were telling everyone to track it down, to seek it out. Um, I would implore everyone who plans to see it after listening to this podcast to order the vinegar syndrome Blu-ray because I watched it on Amazon prime because my vinegar syndrome Blu-ray is in a box and Amazon primes uh, stream of it is very muddy. There's a huge hiss on the audio. It's incredibly dark. And I know some of that is inherent to the source because this movie was shot very cheaply and very quick. Um, so it's not, you know, this gorgeous looking film, but no, this is, this is endemic to Amazon prime because on occasion I will clickety click on one of those just to see what it looks like. And for instance, they have the Lon Chaney silent film, he who gets slapped and on Amazon prime, it's unwatchable. And the other night it was on Turner classic movies, silent Sunday and it looked like it was filmed yesterday. So I don't know who Amazon is paying for the rights, but there's stuff on Amazon Prime that looks like it's from a VHS tape. Yeah, and that's kind of what this looked like. Um, it wasn't in widescreen, um, so it was it presented, you know, 133. Or, um, so do seek out the Vinegar Sigil. Yeah, I have made this offer before, <laughs> given that all, all of your discs are in a box i i'm holding the dvd now because i'm so proud that i own it i'm waving it around um i would have gladly driven this over to your house pal which i appreciate but i knew that you also had to watch it so i didn't think it was fair to ask for your copy which i did i meant to just kind of jump around and watch bits of it but the minute it ran i watched the entire thing it's um it's it's really fascinating to me because it's so unlike other movies of that era. Era. And um, I think one of the reasons the original audience responded to it is that it's not Hollywood. It's not Hollywoodized. I think it presented things that people actually recognized from their life and, people, and things that people recognized from the streets. Well, and that's uh, originally where I was going with this was – Despite, you know, announcing right off the bat, uh, starring the black community, despite being made with this audience in mind, it is not a particularly commercial movie. So I was no. surprised on my first viewing at how sort of avant-garde the whole thing is. But then I begin to wonder 
And he does have a background in that in terms of the films he made in France. But I think some of the things that we might regard as avant-garde are because of the budget. Okay. The editing, the editing in particular. But whenever I watch Sweet Sweetback, um, one of the bonus features on the Vinegar Syndrome disc is a um, interview with Melvin Van Peebles from some film festival. And he says, um, art makes its own rules. Art makes its own rules. That anyone who tells you that any art form has rules, it's usually a gatekeeper of the type of art that is popular. And they're bringing up these rules in an attempt to keep you out. And that that's one of the things I admire about Sweet Sweetback, that it makes its own rules. It establishes its own style. And it's clearly not interested in being a Hollywood film. And it's also not interested in being realistic. Right. Even though you could say, well, there's certain aspects of it that, that are like a documentary. But it's far from realistic, especially in terms of the editing and his use of the soundtrack. The editing owes a lot to kind of French New Wave. Um, yeah. And yeah, it does seem – because I was trying to read some criticism of the film and some write-ups of the film – uh, in preparation for this podcast. And a lot of them commented on some of the editing and some of the photography techniques, some of the dissolves and some of the, you know, psychedelic colors and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I had to wonder how much of that was Melvin Van Peebles doing that deliberately as a way of communicating some idea about Sweetback. Uh, or as you say, how much of it was just a function of, well, here's what I've got. Um, I have to make something out of this, you know, because I have no money and no time. I think the movie was shot in like 19 days or something like that uh, with money that he borrowed from Bill Cosby. Um, just as a way of sort of pasting, you know, holding the whole thing together with scotch tape uh, that he uses a lot of these crazy editing techniques as a way of making something out of the material that he had shot. And I, that's, that's the interpretation that I favor. Um, I know that he got a whole bunch of band members together. It's a band that later became Earth, Wind, and Fire. And they performed the soundtrack. And the soundtrack was finished before the film because one of the ways Van Peebles bankrolled the film was that he released the soundtrack first. Right. Because he thought it would, it would get the film some attention. And, the film really uses those songs, although even calling them songs is odd because <laughs> it's like an it's like an audio collage yeah. where things keep coming to the fore and then fading into the background. There's of course the chant that I made reference to at the beginning of the podcast, but there's also um, a spiritual called "Wade in the Water," and uh, it's used quite a bit, and that's a song from 1901. Um, talking about how these are not new issues that we're bringing up. And whenever I hear that song, and it's used a lot in Sweet Sweetback, it sticks in my head because um, another year at Ebertfest, they had this amazing documentary about Hurricane Katrina called Trouble the Waters. And it was made completely of video camcorder footage of families who decided to stay. And ride it out. Mm -hmm. And not only was the film called Trouble the Waters, but they made extensive use of that song as well. And um, it's it's in it's not only does it make you feel like you're in church, but it's in cantery. It's it's repeated so much. It sort of becomes a spell. Um, and in the use of it in Sweet Sweetback is sort of amazing. I also give Sweet Sweetback a lot of credit you had said that it doesn't seem like it's bending over backwards to please its perceived audience. That sweet, sweet back is not shy about making you feel uncomfortable about things. Mm -hmm. Um, in that when I watched it again today for the podcast, uh, the opening sequence with Melvin Van Peebles, son, Mario is very difficult to watch. Erica, uh who is not, you know, uh, prudish in any way, her 
jaw was like <laughs> open at that whole opening sequence. We're talking about a scene where young Sweetback, played by Mario Van Peebles as a child, uh, essentially loses his virginity in a brothel. And it's graphic, and, and it goes think, on for like a really long time. And I have to think that it was also uncomfortable back when the film was made. And I really give Mario credit because one of the issues he talks about in Badass was his father's decision to do that. Yeah. To his son. And it's it's not something you can easily approve of or dismiss it's it's um it's complicated and it's it's disturbing and that's that's how the film begins and ostensibly it's to tell us how he got his nickname it's i mean that sequence and the entire film are incredibly raw um and I, I found that fascinating that it was something, it, it was an experience watching this film, not just something that I was entertained by or something that challenged me. I mean, the, the construction of it was challenging in addition to the content that was being displayed. Um, the whole film was this experience. It's this collage, this sort of 90 minute, 100 minute montage um, of events that at times reminded me of high noon in a weird way. Uh, and then, Very other, much. yeah. And then other times reminded me of other, you know, films of the 1970s that were influenced by Sweetback. Not that this film drew influence from those films, but that, um, and so much of my experience, I realized in watching this film and in thinking about this film and in thinking about the time, that it was made. Um, I want to come back to the sexuality of the film in just a minute, but I, I was thinking about so many of the black exploitation movies that I like are made by white filmmakers. It's, it's Jack yeah. Hill. It's Jonathan Kaplan. It's uh, Larry Cohen. Um, and I, I, you know what that says about me. I don't know. Um, but this was a film, you know, made for black audiences by a black filmmaker. Um, and I think part of its success came with, as we talked about, the recognition of so many events that take place in the film um, and and having a hero to cheer for, you know, and that's why Shaft was also a hit this same year, that it was finally presenting black characters that we could cheer for who were doing things that we wanted to be seeing black characters doing in this case, fighting back against the police, escaping the police. Um, and and as many critics have pointed out, ostensibly getting away with it. Right. Um, although one article that I read said, you know, what are we to make of that ending? Because he escapes into Mexico and we get that title card saying, you know, Sweetback will be back. Um, I forget the exact phrasing. To, settle to make someone pay some dues. Yeah, there you go, to make someone pay some dues. Um, but that everything we've seen makes that seem impossible, that, that he can't ever come back. And so is it just but a fantasy? At, well, and at the time the film was released, that would get a tremendous reaction in the theater. Right. Um, what I compare it to, and sometimes we forget how things were just 50 years ago, um, the film In the Heat of the Night... Ah yes, which won the which won the Oscar that year. Right, um, has a scene where Sidney Poitier uh, uh, confronts this old Southern racist played by Larry Gates, who was also in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He's got the best line in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You've been in love before. It didn't last. It never does. But um, Poitier is not putting up with Gates's shit and slaps him. And from what I've read with black audiences and white audiences alike, when that film was released, that scene blew everyone away. Mm -hmm. um, you had said um, that the film doesn't pander. Oddly enough, and you said the structure reminded you of High Noon. As I watched it today, believe it or not, one of the films that reminded me of was David Lynch's Eraserhead for the following reasons. One... I want everyone to leave this podcast by saying 
Sweet Sweetback's badass song is like High Noon meets Eraserhead. <laughs> I need to see it because I just want to hear people say that. But in much the same way that Sweet Sweetback was one of the first black exploitation films, Eraserhead was one of the first midnight movies. Right. And I think in much the same way that Melvin Van Peebles is not interested in making a movie to entertain a white audience. I've always thought David Lynch has no interest in Eraserhead in giving you anything that provides the pleasures that we normally associate with movies. It is Eraserhead is slow. It's shrill. It's uncomfortable. It's repellent to look at. It's it was almost designed to be the anti-film. Right. To be the opposite of a Hollywood film that's trying to curry your favor. And one of the things I like about Sweet Sweetback is that it makes me confront my whiteness in that this is the rare film that's not trying to curry my favor. Right. Yeah, I don't know if those other movies or those other filmmakers that I talked about, if that's what they're doing. You know, I, it made me <laughs> question myself as an audience member because I was like, oh, I'm, I'm watching these movies that are, you know, told through sort of a white prism. Um, and they have black casts and black actors, black stars like Isaac Hayes or Pam Greer or Fred Williamson, you know, um, and they're classics but of the black exploitation genre, but they're made by white filmmakers. And black and white aside, I think all the films that you're talking about, some of which I have seen with you, rely on the trope of revenge. Yeah. And in a weird way because everyone can understand that feeling of wanting to get even, that's one way for white filmmakers to have a white audience empathize with a black character because we recognize that they want to get some satisfaction because they've been wrong. Yeah. And not that it's particularly nice to think about, that's sort of universal. That's, that's, that's something intrinsic to human beings. Well, and and Sweetback doesn't do that. Oddly enough, it presents a character who's more reactive than proactive, whereas some of the characters yeah. in the movies that we're talking about, you know, are looking for revenge um, and so are very much taking their fates in their hands. This is just mostly a movie about a guy running away and getting away with it. You know, he's sort of staying two steps ahead of the cops. Um, and so it's but not... But I wonder if that... I wonder if that was a deliberate decision on on Melvin Van Peebles' part because it would be a very different film if um, Sweetback was an outspoken revolutionary from the beginning. Mm -hmm. That it certainly turns him into more that more of an everyman if he sort of stumbles into this because he's trying to do his boss a favor. Right. You know, you'll be released later tonight. Ha ha ha. <laughs> right. Um, I, I had said that I wanted to go back to the, the sexuality in the film because it is very sexually graphic and we get multiple scenes of Sweetback sort of performing in multiple senses of the word. Um, what do you make of the sexuality in the film? Because originally, you know, this was a movie that was rated X famously by an all-white jury. By an all-white jury. <laughs> um, um, the booklet that's included in the vinegar syndrome disc has a delightful essay and i'm looking it's by travis crawford and crawford points out something that i had never really put my finger on that from the opening sequence that we talked about that's so disturbing with the child and through the other sequences that involve sexuality and it's not just Sweetback, because there's that weird scene where the woman has the hat and the beard. Yeah. That <clears throat> all of the sexuality is presented as being performative and joyless. Yeah. As if the characters, especially Sweetback, because he's a sexual performer, they're being made to do this. And again... I'm not in Melvin Van Peebles' head, but um, black people have always been portrayed this way 
as sort of the other when it comes to sexuality, and I don't really want to get into specifics, but that uh, the black stud is this cultural and narrative stereotype, and I think maybe he's commenting on that. That was my feeling as well, and I bring this up because I read reviews, um, many of which I believe came out in 1971 when the film was originally released. And I think, you know, with hindsight, I think critics now are more kind of savvy to what Van Peebles was doing. But I was surprised to read some of the criticism that talks about how the film is indulging in that particular stereotype. Um, the prowess of the black man, the, the sexual prowess of the black man sort of being put out to stud. Um, and I thought the movie is very much commenting on that and not. Yeah, it's not propagating that trope. Because, yeah, because if it was indulging, it would be presented in um, in an erotic, stimulating way. It's not right. Um, which brings up the fact that on occasion, uh, the people behind Sweet Sweetback uh, tried to pass it off as a as a sex movie uh, to get around the unions that were sniffing around because he was making this film non-union. Right. So that's one right. of the, right. One of the, uh, one of the evasions they used to, uh, to make this as a low budget film. Right. Oh no, no, just pay no attention. It's just a porno. <laughs> right. Um, another black exploitation movie that I love that is commenting on some of the same stuff that I th- maybe want to take credit for, showing you for the first time uh welcome home brother charles and talk about in the words of bill hicks squeegeeing my third eye quite clean thank you (laughs) my god what a film and in terms of um uh, the black man being presented as a sexual stud the final sequence in that film is just the batshit crazy doesn't begin to describe part of why i chose to show that film i not spoil it here. No, and I genuinely love the movie, and so I chose it for that reason. But yeah, there's certainly a certain joy in introducing an audience to that movie because you get to watch their reactions to the the last few minutes of that movie. Um, but yeah, that's a movie that also you talks watch- about the the black man as sort of the sexual stud, uh, and you know, you, white you insecurity. Watch the film. You watch the film and you know when it was made and you cannot believe it was made. Hmm. Oh my gosh. I love that movie. Anyway, back to... uh... It's like, this isn't a movie. This is the id of the filmmaker. (laughs) Back to... uh, Back to Sweetback. Um, Yeah, the, the reason that I talk about it being similar to High Noon is because so much of, particularly the first half of the movie... The second half of the movie is more Sweetback just kind of on his own running. Um, But the first half finds him continually turning to others for help and being turned away. Um, Which I thought was interesting. Again, when you're talking about a film that talks about uh, its opening title card says starring the black community – but then I feel like so much of the film is not about a sense of community, that he doesn't have anybody that he can turn to. Uh, and he's certainly, you know, standing up for others, which is part of what makes him sort of this folk hero. But uh, he doesn't necessarily have others that he can turn to much the same as Gary Cooper and Heinen. And I think that's deliberate. And I think it's interesting that the first half of the film is that <clears> – <throat> And I don't know if it's a question of a deliberate narrative arc or, again, one of budget. But as the film goes along, there are fewer and fewer people in it, and it becomes more and more abstract. Right. It becomes more and more surreal. Right. Yeah, surreal is a good word for it. And I I just – I wasn't ready for it. I didn't know what to expect from this movie. It was a movie that has been on my radar for years and years and years, and I knew of it as being an important film. Um but I saw Badass before I saw this movie. Um, That's not necessarily a bad thing. No, I don't think so. Although I think seeing it the other way around would give me greater appreciation for both movies. I think Badass's one flaw 
is that if you see Badass first, it does not prepare you for the film that Sweet Sweetback is. Right. And I think that might have been deliberate because Mario just doesn't want to ride his father's coattails. Um, but that Badass, the film about the making of it, doesn't give you enough insight into how revolutionary Sweet Sweetback is. Right. Yeah. Um... Because if you're seeing Badass before you see Sweet Sweetback, you've never seen Sweet Sweetback, so Badass is going to lead you to believe that they're making a normal Hollywood film. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and Which I think, they are not. I think that's more of what I was expecting in the vein of something like Dolomite. I knew that this would be something that was made independently. I knew that this would be something that was rough around the edges. Um because I had seen Badass, but I was not prepared for the way that this movie is put together. Again, I think this might speak to the two of us because we have seen way too many movies. But when something is different than anything else, I give that tremendous credit, no absolutely. matter what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Because... Um, as my college film professor, David Desser, love you, Dave, used to expound way too much because no one ever knew what he was talking about. Realism is a style. It's a style. What you're watching isn't real. Maybe I took this to heart because I taught high school film studies for so long, and it was very hard to teach this to, to teenagers that... Many people want to sort of pretend what's going on on screen is real. And the style of realism helps them do that. Yeah. But there are plenty of other styles and plenty of other styles that aren't used enough in movies. And I give Melvin Van Peebles a lot of credit. Um, this is unlike any movie ever made. Yeah. I have not seen... At least a film that was shown commercially in a theater. Right. Have you seen Watermelon Man? I have not. Yes. When I was a lad, they used to show Watermelon Man a lot on TV. And I'm sure it was cut up. But even back then, I thought, you know, I was maybe 11. I thought, this is a really interesting premise for a movie. It's... It's very entertaining. I haven't seen it in a dog's age. I'm not sure if it dates particularly well, but I know um, in the interview that accompanies the Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray, um, Melvin is asked about that because apparently he promised the studio that he would film two different endings, one of which was Godfrey Cambridge waking up, and it was all a dream. And uh, they wanted that for insurance. And Melvin never filmed that. He <laughs> He turned it in with the one ending the film has always had, which is that the character stays black and becomes politicized. Yeah. I just – I had that in my head. Again, having seen Badass, I knew that Watermelon Man sort of sort of gave him the cachet to make Sweetback, right? Uh, Columbia did not expect Watermelon Man to be a hit, and it was. And in fact, they offered him a three-picture deal, which he turned down. To make this. Yeah. Yeah. To make it independently. And I just, I, for the life of me, I, I couldn't wrap my head around somebody seeing Watermelon Man, you know, even as a, as a sort of studio success, and then saying, oh, let's see his next movie, and seeing this. This movie just spun my head around. And Watermelon Man is interesting because I remember Godfrey Cambridge was a stand-up comedian and he used to be on Ed Sullivan a lot. And I think maybe it was that fame that got people to check it out. Um, although someone points out that in the opening sequences when Godfrey Cambridge is supposed to be Caucasian, um, the makeup was not up to Cambridge's performance and he looks very strange in that movie until he wakes up and he's black. Okay. And we've talked about Sweetback mostly in the context of being sort of a revolutionary 
um, black film, but we haven't really talked about it as being a revolutionary independent film and just the degree to which uh, Mel, I, I keep wanting to call him Mario Van Peebles, Melvin Van Peebles, um, raised the money, did it all himself. And, you know, when other actors, uh, came in to read for Sweetback and sort of complained that maybe he didn't have enough dialogue. Um, yeah, he didn't have enough lines. He was just like, all right, fuck you. I'll do it myself. Um, that this is which wound up doing, which he, which he wound up doing for everything. I mean, he wrote it. He, he composed exactly, the score. Right. And one of the few things he didn't do was run the camera or, or wait, he, did he edit it? I believe he did edit it. Okay. And, and, he has it's it's a very famous interview with him where he said, "I couldn't get anyone to do it, so I did it myself." Right, which is a great credo, uh, a great credo, however that word is pronounced, <laughs> for all artists. And that's why I think it's I such a, a revolutionary independent film because here it just has this one artist who says, "Well, fuck it, I'll do it myself," and and this is what comes out, and I think it's fascinating. Because like I said about the previous film, what we're seeing is the inside of Melvin Van Peebles' id. Right. Right. And that's always a treat. I'll go to those films. <laughs> show me show me some more id films. <laughs> and the other thing I love about Sweet Sweetback, even though it's on a low budget, it's this famous quote that I think of on a weekly basis from the Coen brothers when they said in an interview once, they like any film that's peppy. Yeah. Sweet Sweetback is a peppy film. <laughs> uh, the um, the Coen Brothers' other example of that was was Psycho. Oh, interesting. They said Psych- Psycho is a very peppy film. <laughs> I like peppy. Um, this was turned into a musical in 2008. Did you know that? No, I did not. I didn't either. But I'm just. I can imagine the song. Seeing that right now. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, I I need to see this movie several more times before I can really wrap my head around it. Um, the opening ballad is called You're 13 Now. Come in my room. <laughs> I th- I want to say he's supposed to be 10. It's very disturbing. But I but that the and not at all salacious. It's 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 disturbing. It's it's upsetting. But I like the sort of then jump cut to him as adult yeah. sweetback because oh, it says true. so many things right about it's it, it suggests it suggests the world let's put it this way i never want to meet anyone who says have you seen the first five minutes of sweetback that got me hot <laughs> i never want to meet that person <sighs> but you know you be, you be you just go along your merry way <laughs> Um, we should mention too, we've talked about Mario Van Peebles, um, and, uh, his movie Badass, but he of course grew up to be, uh, quite a talented filmmaker as well. Not all of his films are great. I, in my, in my DTV Nicolas Cage binge, I watched a movie called USS Indianapolis Men of Courage directed by Mario Van Peebles. And it is not very good. It's it's near the bottom of the uh, DTV Nicolas Cage movies. But um, I really like Posse, which was a Western that Mario Van Peebles made. New Jack City is the fucking shit. I love that movie. Um, The first one you mentioned sounds like a paycheck movie. USS Indianapolis Men of Courage. Yeah, I think it was a paycheck movie for everyone involved. Um, Badass, as we mentioned, is a really cool movie. And I haven't seen it, uh, unfortunately, and it's very hard to see now because there's no DVD and there's no Blu-ray. But Mario Van Peebles made a a film about the Black Panthers called Panther. Have you seen it? No, I remember when it came out, but I've never seen it. Yeah, which, I mean, is worth mentioning just because the Black Panthers were so instrumental in making Sweet Sweetback the success that it was. Vinegar Syndrome, get on it. Yeah, right? Um, but yeah, his... The, the uh, Al Adamson box set has been released. You need a new project. <laughs> uh, I've been working my way through that box set, and it is very confusing. If I can just make a brief segue. I started and restarted a movie five different times because I was positive something was wrong with the disc. There are three movies 
on a disc. The first is called Psycho Agogo. The second is called The Man with the Electronic Brain or The Fiend with the Electronic Brain, something like that. And I was trying to watch it for Sci-Fi Day, and I press play, and it starts, and it's Psycho Agogo. And I'm going crazy, and I'm starting, and I'm restarting, and I'm thinking there's a glitch. And uh, is there is there another disc that's faulty in this Al Adamson box set? Because there was already one disc that they had to reissue. Um, but no, it's the man with the electronic brain. It's just that he recut it into Psycho Agogo. Yep. Which I forgot from the um, documentary. I'm selectively interested in that box. And, of course, I watched the documentary, which I enjoyed quite a bit. I think I'm most interested in Dracula versus Frankenstein because that uh, movie had such a sordid history. And uh, Forrest J. Ackerman once wrote an essay about his participation in it. All right. Um, anything else about Sweet Sweetback you want to mention? Again, I can't say this enough. It might not be the type of movie you're used to seeing, but if you have any interest in the history of film – uh, Sweet Sweetback needs to be on your to-watch list. Very nice. Well, thank you for talking about it with me. I enjoyed it, and I was, I'm was i glad to finally have had uh, a reason to see it because it's been on my to-watch list for years, probably, just based on the title alone. It's one of the greatest titles for any movie ever. <laughs> and I'm so glad that you liked it because I know um, – I think it was two or three years ago I wrote a column about it. Yes. And was – I was sort of surprised by my own reaction. It was um it was it was one of the better film uh it was one of the better film screenings for me of that year. Yeah. Um the the, the opposite of exorcism at 60,000 feet. <laughs> well, at least we can come full circle. Uh thank you guys for listening as always. Happy June exploitation. Um visit our website everydayafthismovie.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter at FThisMovie. Email us at FThisMoviePodcast at gmail.com. Donate to uh, charities if you can. Black Lives Matter. We'll have a link in the show notes to Black Lives Matter, but donate to any charity that's doing good work right now. And also, um, fix your hearts or die. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.